Actually, it doesn't matter how tall you are, you can float to the ceiling and do work there. And My children, who it has to be said, are all grown up now, but they still love it when I get introduced as the Minister for Space. Hi, I'm Kim. Hi there, I'm Murray. And we're going to tell the story of Scotland's secret space race. Welcome if you're coming back from the Edinburgh Space Data Capital podcast. Welcome back. Hope you haven't missed us too much. It's been a few weeks. We're going so much bigger with this one, aren't we, Murray? We are. It was brilliant to do the podcast series around what was going on in Edinburgh. But I think fair to say what came out of that was that there's just so much going on in Scotland in the space sector that we had to tell that story next. That's our next port of call. And especially now, we're all locked in our houses still, taking the first tentative steps out of a COVID lockdown. And now more than ever, the Scottish space industry is going to be really important to Scotland and its recovery from this weird, weird situation that we're in right now. I think that's exactly right. So uh, people want to know where's the economic growth going to come from in the future. So the space sector is put forward as one of those sectors which is going to grow hugely. I hope that I hope that it will do. Um, and I think the people we've got on the podcast are, are going to tell us uh, about how that's going to happen. I am really excited about this podcast because I think we're about to spill some secrets. We are indeed, and I think it's fair to say that this is a area of the economy and particularly within Scotland that very very few people know about that's the entire purpose of this podcast is to tell the story of what's going on up here we have a pretty unusual situation whereby we have rocket companies we have people building satellites we have scientists analyzing data and yet very very few people even know that this is a sector of the economy so you should listen in if you're a scientist if you're an entrepreneur if you're somebody thinking about getting a job or starting a career in science and particularly in, in space. We started off, Kim, talking to Ivan McKee, MSP. And uh, I have to say, I think we thought you were very, very cheeky asking him where the money was going to come from. <laughs> you know me well enough by now that I was obviously going to be asking cheeky questions. No, that that was an opportunity to ask the government for more money for the space sector. And I felt I had to take it. I did. Fair enough. Fair enough. On a serious note, it's just superb to see the, the level of interest and support that there is from the Scottish government and the fact that um, Ivan took the time out to come on a podcast which is talking about the growth of the space sector. It's, uh, it's, it's fantastic to see. And I think it's, it's that kind of commitment which means that Scotland's uh, role in space will continue to grow. And I had actually met Ivan last summer at an event hosted by the Institute of Directors where we were all supposed to politely ask our questions about business and I raised the subject of space and he just became so animated and it became very clear that this was something he really cared about, that he was very knowledgeable about, that he was deeply engaged with. And so the first question I had to ask him was, what is it about space that makes him so excited? It's fascinating and it's hugely iconic, of course. My children, who it has to be said, are all grown up now, but they still love it when I get introduced on the media as the Minister for Space. And um, yet of all the parts of my job, I've got to say this is one of the most interesting. And as I say, it's it's hugely iconic. um, And it's apart from all the great opportunity for Scotland in terms of economic development it delivers and apart from everything it can do to tackle the climate change agenda on top of that as something that attracts young people to take part in the STEM agenda I think it's hugely powerful and something we probably frankly need to make make more of as we go forward. 
I totally agree. And we've mentioned a few times how inspiring space is in those kinds of sectors. So it's great to hear you say that. We're obviously just beginning to take tentative steps after the COVID crisis and the lockdown. We're going to have to innovate out of this regardless. Do you think space is an important part of that? Yes, absolutely. Um, And it was quite interesting. I've spoken to a number of space businesses over the last few weeks um, and also to the, uh, the, the Scottish Space Leadership Council had a, a virtual meeting as well and it's very interesting the businesses in the sector are incredibly resilient for the most part they're in a very good place they've got um, a clear direction a lot of support behind them from public and private sector clearly and a very strong market pool for what they're what they're doing and and that applies right across the satellite manufacturer the launch vehicle manufacturer and of course the very important space data sector. So it's a very resilient sector um, and it's a sector that ticks all the boxes as we we move out of uh, this, the ability to look at the planet, understand what it's doing, the contribution that makes to the the environmental agenda is absolutely huge. So yeah, it's very central and Scotland of course is um, fortunate in this as in many other things because of our geography puts us in a very useful place when it comes to space. I've read, and this surprised me, and actually it was news to Murray, so it might even be news to you, Mr. McGee, that um, the space sector is six times more R&D intensive than the UK average. Were you aware of that, first of all? Um, It doesn't surprise me. (laughs) (laughs) No, of course it is. And that applies, say, right across the stuff you see the the satellite guys doing with the miniaturisation of what's happening there, the real innovation on the launch vehicle side and the big focus there on the green fuels they're using, the uh, the lightweight vehicles, etc. But um, also, of course, the huge amount that happens on the, the data side as well. So, yeah, very um, good jobs, very high-paid jobs, and very R&D-intensive sector. Mm-hmm. And what kind of support can the space sector hope to get from the government? Well, we're very closely engaged with what's happening in spend a lot of time working with businesses that are there to see what we can do to work with them. If you look at the support that's going into the space ports, for example, the Ayrshire Growth Deal, a large part of that is focused on what's happening at Presswick. And uh, I had a great call with the, the team there just last week to understand what their ambitions are. And they really are um, hugely ambitious across a whole range of uh, aspects of what can be done um, done from Presswick. And of course, the support that's gone into the uh, Sutherland Spaceport as well, and the other work to attract businesses to Scotland that can, uh, for example, the launch vehicle manufacturers, the support that's gone into um, the, the satellite manufacturers as well, Glasgow, as we know, manufacturers more satellites than anywhere outside of California, I believe. So um, that's uh, that's been significant in terms of the work that we've done to attract those sectors. But as I say, probably the most important thing has just been very close to the sector understanding where it's going and what we can do to help it get there. And we had a big ambition. We were looking for um, 4 billion industry by 2030. Do you think that's on track? Do you think COVID's going to affect that ambition? Well, it's going to be interesting when we come out of COVID. Clearly, the economy is going to take a huge hit everywhere. And there are a number of sectors that are going to find it very difficult to recover and reconfigure themselves although many sectors are looking at how they adopt digitisation and so on and so forth to help them 
work our way out of that. But I expect that the space sector will carry on growing at the rate it has been growing and probably see um, not much of a, a dent, certainly compared to other sectors. So if anything, it will be a larger part of the economy as we come out of this than it was going into it. Excellent. Murray, did you want to jump in with any questions? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued to know from the uh, level of government what the level of aspiration is really to become a, um, a space nation. So as Kim says, there's this top level figure that we hear from um, from Scottish government to capture 1% of the space market by 2030. But I'm just curious to know is, uh, you know, from a personal perspective and then from a government perspective, do you really see Scotland as becoming a, a space nation? Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, it's, uh, and in the last programme for government, the Scottish government programme, for, for this year, uh, space was identified specifically as a sector we wanted to wanted to focus on. And I think we've positioned it extremely well. Not only do we have the complete end-to-end situation where we, we've got everything from the, the manufacture of the satellites, the manufacture of the launch vehicles, the launch capability coming on stream shortly, and the whole data processing side. So we're one of the few countries that can put that whole package together. But we've also positioned that in terms of agile space, so it's quick to respond. That's very much focused on tackling, as I said, climate emergency challenges. Um, so it's quite a different model, perhaps, from what traditional space has been, which has been government projects, big satellites, often defence-related and so on and so forth. The sector in Scotland's in a different, looking at a, a different market opportunities um, on the commercial side. So I think that gives it real sustainability as well. So I think we're, we're in a very good place. We probably need to do more at getting the message out there, frankly, in terms of what uh, what we're doing. So the general population in Scotland have got a better appreciation of it. But I think increasingly internationally, it's getting profile as well. Certainly when you talk to the UK, traditionally that's been centred uh, in, in the south of England. But I think there's an increasing recognition that the role that Scotland has to play in this for lots of reasons is is very central. And I think in terms of the size of the sector in Scotland, it's at least probably more than double, actually, the, the relative size of the sector across the UK. So we get more than our fair share of it, rightly so. And I think we're in a very good place to, to move forward on that basis. And just a word about the spaceports. Um, yeah, now, that has been through the planning process at the moment. Um, which it which obviously has to do. There has been clearly some delay because of the inability of that process to move forward in the current environment. And um, work has been done to see how much of that can be done virtually to to try and keep it as close to on track as we can. So that will put a, a slight delay in. I would expect we won't know fully the extent of that till we come out of the crisis and see where things are. Um, but I've certainly got a big focus on that project plan, making sure that we identify the risks and deal with them to um, take any roadblocks out of the way to try and get us as close to that timeline as we can. Speaking with my um, my university hat on, I'm, I'm curious to know over and above what we're doing already, for instance, I'm in the University of Edinburgh, for universities across Scotland, what would you like to see more of to encourage the growth and development of the space sector? Well, you look at what's there, I mean, Edinburgh's got, well, as you know, a whole range of activities that are spatially. The Strathclyde is very much involved on the uh, with SOX and the, the data uh, conference around about space at Glasgow. Uh, I visited, in fact, opened their space lab there, but there's a whole range of engineering technologies 
they're looking at, uh, including asteroid mining and, and, and all kinds of really, really interesting um, aspects to that. So a number of universities have got quite a, a key role in the sector. Um, and I think all those universities understand the centrality of it and how it impinges on so many other aspects of what they're doing and the strength of that future. So we're very keen that Scotland universities remain in good shape coming out of the crisis. And the work that they're doing on space, I think, is going to become increasingly important to uh, to their future research activity. And very importantly, the work they do with companies to make sure that that is commercialised. Is there going to be any more money available for space? <laughs> um, that is, um, I always fight that good fight for sectors like space to make sure they get the recognition and the support that they need. So, um, yeah, watch this space. I'm going to, it's a bit of a, an open one, but um, if you if you could say uh, from a, a wish list of things that you would like to happen uh, to really ignite the, the space sector in Scotland, which isn't happening at the moment, what would it be? There are things that on the legislation side need to be done, and this is a conversation we have with the UK government on an ongoing basis, but that needs to be put in place so that the sector has got clarity on that regulatory framework um, and some specific issues in there um, that need to be need to be covered off. So it's important that we get that nailed down. So I think that is a that, that's one of the, the very practical things that we need to happen. But on a more general aspect, I think a recognition um, within Scotland that this is a real jewel in the crown, a huge opportunity and something that we, we need to focus on at all levels, I think, is, a, is something, a message that we need to take forward. OK, well, uh, certainly from uh, from our side on the podcast, we're going to do our um, our best to promote Scotland um, internationally. We, we are getting listeners, I'm glad to say, from around the world. So um, we, shall, we shall plough on and, and spread the message about Scottish space. Great. Thank you very much. Ivan McKee there, MSP, Minister for Trade, Investment and Innovation, also known as the Space Minister here in Scotland. You also managed to get a few cheeky questions in there, Murray. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm just curious from the perspective of, of the government, what they see the different players in this doing and what they would like to see more of. And that's why I asked that question as well, that what, what one thing would you like to see changed which would really encourage the sector to grow. And, and it is this point of, of legislation. I've heard that actually multiple times from different organizations in the space sector. And it seems to be the probably more the upstream, so the, the design and, and launch of satellites, for instance, that come up with this uh, issue. So I really, really enjoyed it. I think, as mm. I say, fantastic to see that level of commitment from government. And it was interesting you were talking about legislation because is that not – one of the things that's kind of having to be discussed around this spaceport that we're trying to build in Sutherland is just the legislative framework around it. Yeah, exactly. So we're very, very focused on the science. But of course, as with any new frontier of technologies that opens up, there's going to have to be laws and, uh, and regulations put in place to be able to manage how that sector mm-hmm. develops. Um, and of course, you know, the count counts for outer space as well. Mm. And the technology is often is progressing far, far quicker than the, uh, the sort of policy and legislative environment. So um, mm. we shouldn't necessarily be surprised, but it's useful to know what the uh, the blockers are on the growth of the economy. And I guess as we come out of uh, the lockdown and possibly face a very, very large recession, then we need to know what things we can do. 
to make mm-hmm. things grow more quickly. Yeah, it's great that there is that government support. And it's actually kind of not surprising because if you think about the history of Scotland and the innovation that this country is responsible for throughout the centuries, you know, of course, we're going to be at the forefront of this. And actually, when we chatted to Bonnie, wasn't it? She was talking about (laughs) how Scotland invented the modern world. I'm not going to just put too fine a point on that, Mr. Englishman. We've, we've now gone to uh, from from Edinburgh to uh, Scotland. Yeah, Scotland's greater than the modern world, but obviously Scotland has a fantastic heritage in in science and engineering and in in philosophy, and you would expect that, that culture will now be brought to bear on the on the space sector. And Bonnie said some very very positive things about Scotland's engineering heritage and its potential for the future in uh, in the global space sector. I know. And who'd have thought when we first started recording our space podcast a couple of months ago that we would one day have an actual astronaut on as a guest. Both Murray and I are really delighted to introduce Bonnie Dunbar, one of the few women to have made it into space. She's actually a veteran of five space flights. So I had to ask her what were the main differences between her first in 1985 and her most recent in 1998. Probably the difference is the ability to adapt. You know, the first time you're still becoming uh, accustomed to being weightless and working in that environment. By the time I flew my fifth flight, it was just second nature. I felt that way as soon as I uh, achieved orbit when you become weightless. That's wonderful. What does that feel like being weightless? Well, we, we do a lot of training in the water tank, you know, because you're what we call neutrally buoyant. So just as a scuba diver can... Uh, be upside down and and move around. You're very free like that, but you don't have to ha- be. You're not in water and you're not wearing all the equipment. So actually, it doesn't matter how tall you are. You can float to the ceiling and do work there. And uh, I I actually found it very enjoyable. A wonderful experience. Not many people get that, I suppose. And you're one of only sixty five women to have been in space. There's nine times more women than men that have been in space. Why do you think that is? Oh, well, it's very easy and to explain it. And I, I certainly don't believe it's because of gender. It's because of choices uh, and qualifications. So to become an astronaut, you have to have a technical degree. And so, you know, for I'd say most of my life, 50 years, we've been trying to encourage more young women to go into science and engineering. Certainly the doors are open, uh, but trying to get them to make that choice because it does require you to take mathematics and there seems to be a phobia about that. <laughs> Despite you know, despite the fact that um, Madame Curie won two Nobel Prizes more than 100 years ago, uh, it's uh, we're still trying to get more young women to study math, physics, and chemistry because of the stepping stones into science and engineering. And if you have those degrees, then you're you're qualified or in medicine to apply to become an astronaut. And and that's really the difference in numbers. Is it changing, do you think? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. If you take a look at the last class, uh, I believe about 12, it was seven men, five women, because there are more women uh, going through the sciences and engineering, but still not enough making those decisions. And it starts very early. The studies show that young girls start making, and boys for that matter, start making those decisions in middle school. And uh, we need to encourage uh, both our young boys and girls to, not be afraid of failure, because when you get into science, your first experiments fail. That's why they call it research. You search and search and you keep researching it. And if I might be candid, sometimes the media 
doesn't portray women in science and engineering very well. And for impressionable young girls who look at media and social media and uh, the internet, those impressions make a difference. So while we've worked very hard in engineering and universities to try to bring more young boys and girls in, sometimes the media doesn't help us. <laughs> so. I totally agree. And that's one of the reasons that we're so keen to speak to you for the podcast is to kind of explode that myth and, and, and showcase some, some leading women in space as well. It's true, in, it's true in the UK, though, as well. If you look at the, the, even the recent reports over the past couple of years, there remains a gender imbalance. But also, I think generally there's a bit of a bias against STEM. There remains that people are slightly reluctant to engage in science and technology. So I know you've, you've worked uh, with the space school in, um, here in, uh, in Strathclyde, what more can we do to try and engage the next generation to take that risk and to overcome the fear of math and science? Well, I think you're doing exactly that. So if I can back up a bit, I was the oldest of four children, and my grandfather was a big part of my life. He lived until he was 93. He was a fiddler. He was still had his, you know, his Dundonian accent. But you know, Scotland can be very proud of the fact that. It started very early on uh, educating both boys and girls. And I was encouraged by my grandfather. I didn't, we didn't have the internet. I had books. And the, the Scottish uh, were very great explorers. And that's what space is all about, right? The, the pursuit of the unknown. And, and uh, you know, 150 years ago, it was across oceans, or 200 years ago, uh, that inquisitive nature, that curiosity of wanting to, to understand what you what you don't know about. And so I think that was instilled in me through my Scottish grandparents and my parents uh, who homesteaded in Washington State. I mean, they started their own farm. They were looking for their own adventure in life. And when you do that, sometimes you don't succeed, but you get up and you try again. You're always searching for those answers. So no one ever discouraged me in math and science, quite frankly in my school or anywhere else. So when I ask young girls in particular, you know, what's discouraged them, discouraging them, uh, they do tell me it's the internet and TV images, you know, so you, you're doing exactly the right thing. And I encourage you to reach out to your peers and say, how are you portraying not just young women in science and engineering, but scientists and engineers, because I think it's starting to, uh, and, impact the number of young men that we uh, attract to the, the discipline. And without that pipeline, we won't enjoy this quality of life that we have. When you think about it, we're not living in caves. Uh, we buy food. We have electricity, <laughs> all these things. Look at how we're talking to one another. That's, that's engineering and, and basic science. And we're going to need that forever. <laughs> I'm obviously an independent journalist and not a space scientist. So I'm always interested to know what the inspiration is. And David said he, he found the inspiration of space in particular was around young people and getting them excited and, and everybody gets excited about space. Whereas Murray's obviously more focused on the environmental benefits and the way that we can measure deforestation and help you know contribute towards climate change solutions. What about for you? What do you think is the most exciting thing about space? Well, it was space exploration, actually starting to read about it in science fiction, H.G. Wells and Jules Verne, Arthur C. Clarke when he was writing short stories. 
that was exciting to me. And growing up in the country, I could see the Milky Way and all the stars. And, and it was exciting. It was about exploration, about acquiring knowledge of the unknown. And I was about eight or nine when I, I decided that I really wanted to be part of space. So when we went to the moon uh, in 1969, I, when we landed on the moon, I was already in the university studying engineering. But the reason I was there goes back, you know, over a decade as to when I became uh, inspired by space, if you will, to go into science and engineering. And I didn't know what an engineer was. Both my parents were ranchers and farmers, uh, but I read about it in books. And the books said that if I wanted to become an astronaut, I needed a technical degree. And I said, well, okay, what do I need that next? <laughs> and my, my eighth grade teacher said, well, you need to study algebra. So I said, what's that? And he said, trust me. So I took algebra and geometry, trigonometry, chemistry and physics. And, and I was in sports. So, you know, I, I believe people ought to be well-rounded, you know, not just siphoned into one area. Uh, but all of that and, and because I, I really focused on my studies allowed me to acquire some scholarships and support to go to the university. So I was actually the first person from my family going back probably hundreds of years to Scotland to actually go to a university. That's wonderful. And we started speaking before we, we officially started the interview about your family in Scotland, but could you just talk us through your links with Scotland? Well, so I, I mentioned that my uh, grandfather was uh, born and raised in Dundee and immigrated when he was 19 on a ship from Glasgow, came through Ellis Island, New York. Uh, he worked for a year uh, breaking horses till he earned enough money to get for a train fare to go west, and he ended up in Condon, Oregon, in a Scottish community there. I mean, uh, uh, I still go back to Condon for the Fourth of July parade, and you'll still they still celebrate Bobby Burns's birthday there oh, every year, know. and have Kayleys, and they're always pipers uh, celebrating the Fourth of July parade. Uh, but my grandfather had a big influence on me in terms of uh, inspiration and, and always uh, trying to reach farther than I thought I could. So uh, when I was uh, in the university, he used to write me letters. They were always in verse, very much like Bobby Burns, uh, really quite good. <laughs> uh, and he was quite a good fiddler as well. My grandmother, who grew up uh, on the North Sea in Bampshire, Gardenston was a small town, I think she immigrated uh, as a nurse's aide when she was about 24, and uh, they met at a baseball game in Portland, Oregon. So the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> and how nice that you know that whole history as well. I assume he told you these stories when you were growing up. Well, I heard it from uh, his point of view. My grandmother actually passed away not long before I was born, but I came back quite frequently in the 70s and 80s. I had uh, six aunts in Dundee, great aunts. I uh, had a great aunt uh, in Paisley outside of Glasgow and some relatives still up in uh, Gardenston. I was curious to know if your perspective changed at all after having undertaken your, your space missions. Mm -hmm. Did any of the experiments or simply the experience of being in space change your perspective on anything profoundly? Not profoundly. Uh, you know, I was up, not up there long enough. I would have loved a long mission. Uh, I would go to Mars in a heartbeat. Uh, as a, uh, a researcher for other people's experiments, although I had a couple of my own, you know, the hundreds of experiments I operated were for other scientists and engineers on Earth. We trained with them up for up to two years. Uh, 
On my first flight, we actually had an experiment from a, a Scottish researcher. Two of my flights I had used the robotic arm to capture a uh, research satellite we brought back. I had space lab flights with U.S. researchers. And so it, we knew, and there's a little bit of pressure there, that our performance was critically important to the success of the people on the ground. We were part of that research team. So I, I know there's a perspective that, you know, astronauts just go up and fly and they throw a bunch of switches. <laughs> but we're actually part of the research team. We have to understand what we're doing and we have to be multidisciplinary. So medicine, uh, physics, chemistry, uh, earth observation. We, we study oceanography and uh, meteorology and geography, geology as well. Wow, is there no end to your talents? That's incredible to know <laughs> so much about so many things. How do you spend your time now? You're obviously working with students. Oh yeah, I'm a full professor at Texas A&M University. Uh, so I have a laboratory called the Aerospace Human Systems Lab. And we are focused right now on two different areas, uh, next generation spacesuits and all the technology that goes into that because a spacesuit is just a human shaped spacecraft life support, thermal control, communications, all of that. Uh, it's actually harder to design a, a spacesuit than a capsule. And then uh, the other area is what I call partial gravity fluid physics. Uh, when we went to a weightless environment, we had to understand how liquids and gases behave because there's no natural convection, no thermal transfer that makes hot water go up to the top or hot air drives weather. Well, when you're somewhere in between, because the station is, we call it microgravity, it's about a millionth of Earth's gravity. Moon is one six and Mars is about three eighths. Well, how do these liquids and gases behave in that gravitational environment? Because that will drive the design of life support systems, of chemistry, if we're doing in-situ resource utilization or trying to extract oxygen out of rocks in, on the Moon or Mars or even how you manage liquid fuels for your rockets. So that's a real fundamental research area. And I've got a very uh, talented uh, PhD student, doctoral student working on that right now for me. So those are exciting things to keep doing. Absolutely. Murray's face is lit up. Look at you, Murray. <laughs> You're like, can I believe? Well, I'm, in, I'm intrigued about this comment of, about going to, to Mars. So you, you would be on that mission. Well, yes. Actually, you talked about um, inspiration. So. Going to Mars when I was growing up was the first articulated by Werner von Braun, who was the architect of his going to the moon. And there were quite a few books written on it or articles. We, we know that Mars, in fact, used to be a planet with water and geological processes. It has the largest dormant volcano in our solar system, Olympic Mons on it. Uh, so what happened to Mars? You know, what happened to its atmosphere? What happened to its water? Can we learn from that? So that's quite exciting. And we're actually very fortunate that we're the third planet from the sun. And it's only the fourth planet to the sun. <laughs> so I know it seems like a tremendous distance to, to leap. And it'd be six to nine months to get there. But it's far better than trying to go to Saturn or Jupiter or some <laughs> other place. So if we're going to explore to another planet, that's a pretty good one. So where do you think space travel and the space industry is going to go over the next couple of decades? Well, you know, I always hate to predict, <laughs> you know, uh, where we go is really dependent upon us as humans, is it not? We have to set the goals. 
we have to have the foundations for getting there and putting the resources there. But that talent, that, that people talent, is absolutely critical, growing our next generation uh, and investing in them. But we as a species have to be looking uh, beyond our lifetimes. We know from astronomy now uh, and astrophysics that we're a very young solar system, but we're, we're not infinite. <laughs> Our sun's about halfway through its lifetime, and suns are born and suns die. <laughs> you know, what do we think about? We, we, you know, where, where does our species go next? As the sun starts to uh, mature and grow larger, uh, it'll engulf the inner planets and it will start to, to, to move outward. So I think we need to think about interplanetary and maybe even interstellar transportation as we move forward. I just wonder as well, I mean, we, one of the major questions at the moment is the role of artificial intelligence. And we're getting obviously major advances in robotics. And so I wonder whether indeed it will be humans uh, actually undertaking the exploration in practice or whether it will be our sort of digital representatives. Well, that's a question that's often asked, uh, but when you actually talk to some of the researchers, particularly people who were running the robots on Mars, what those robots cannot do is ask critical questions and to do the type of research that humans are capable of doing. And I think even in AI, I mean, if you send them out there on their own, you know, how do we benefit from that? You know, as they say, man does not live by bread alone. It's that curiosity, that, that spirit of exploration. And it, it's all uh, comparative, right? I look at my grandfather. My grandfather bought a one-way ticket out of Glasgow at 19. In the steerage of a ship, he had no relatives there, didn't really know what he was going to find. But he knew he wanted to make a different life for himself because he didn't have any opportunities, either from family or, or from income and uh, made his way across there because he was driven by spirit. I once asked him you know, why he did that, because you know, you're, two, what, two weeks at sea? And, and think about then, you know, we, he, he sailed when we had no airplanes. Wow. The Wright brothers didn't fly till 1903. And he said he just wanted to have the feel of his own soil in his hands, land. Uh, but I, if I might brag on Scotland a little bit, you know, Scotland really has a great history in science and things like, you know, the encyclopedia and the dictionaries and in trying to disseminate public knowledge. And I have friends who remind me that there's a book that says um, how Scotland invented the modern world. <laughs> <laughs> Glasgow, University of Edinburgh, and University of Glasgow, Strathclyde, University of Dundee are really great examples. Glasgow, for example, has um, you know, some of the oldest laboratories uh, in the world in terms of studying the, the laws of thermodynamics. Uh, so you can be proud of that heritage. It's, I think, important to, to instill that pride in, in uh, you know, the nine-year-olds in Scotland. <laughs> my um, my great-great-grandfather was a postdoc for Lord Kelvin. Well, in fact, I was actually referring to Lord Kelvin's lab. I had the great privilege of being uh, toured around it uh, about, oh, maybe 15 years ago. And it was just fascinating because, you know, in school you learn about Lord Kelvin and, and his laws, but to really relate them to a real person is quite extraordinary.
Wow, that was absolutely fantastic. I guess I didn't really expect so many stories compressed into one interview there, but that was I, I felt that was utterly inspirational. I had such a big smile on my face for hours after speaking to Bonnie. I was just so inspired. She was wonderful, wasn't she? The bit that I really, really loved was her idea of, of adventure and exploration. And when we started to talk about robotics and AI and so on, she just put humanity at the centre of space. And I absolutely love that. I don't know how we're going to better this. Oh, I know how we'll better this. We'll kick you out and get someone in better next week. Yeah, well, I thought you might frame it like that. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have Christina Tamina join us for a one-off special. We are celebrating International Women in Engineering Day. So Christina and I are going to present and we have got some fantastic women on the show, which will hopefully inspire young women in particular, to take up the STEM subjects and see the breadth of opportunity that there is in the engineering world. We have Hina Khan from Spire and we have Cassandra Mercury from Craft Prospect. Two amazing women with fantastic stories. I can't wait for you to hear them. And Murray, we'll miss you, but we will have you back the week after. Well, I, I hope it goes well. I'm, uh, I will listen in with uh, a great deal of interest. Please don't be too brutal on me in my absence. I look forward to hearing that and hope uh, next week's recording recording goes well thank you and uh, thanks for today it's been fun getting back into the podcast saddle we might even do it face to face one of these days i i doubt it <laughs> no I, I i hope so too it won't be too long yeah thanks thanks for today and it was ab- absolutely brilliant to hear from our, our two guests and i think that sets a brilliant scene for the uh, remainder of the series so enjoy next week's recording i'll speak to you soon yeah, i'll speak to you soon and remember if you want to get in touch with murray and i we are on twitter he is at murray b collins and i am at kim McAllister. thanks for listening 